things. First Kings chapter 18 as we continue in what we want to get doing this evening, continuing in from this morning's Bible study in 1 Kings chapter 18. I started off this morning, we were talking about in that Bible study that we did this morning that there was the awards that could be given out and we called them the, in fact they're called the idiot awards and they give those out. Let me uh, give you a, a couple examples more of individuals who were given these awards for foolish things that they had done. Early this year some Boeing employees on the airfield decided to steal a life raft from one of the 747s that they were working on. They were successful in getting it out of the plane and taking at home, and shortly after, they decided to take it for a float down the river. They noticed a Coast Guard helicopter coming towards them after about an hour or so. It turned out that the chopper was homing in on the emergency locator beacon that was activated when the raft was inflated. Those people are no longer employees at Boeing Airlines. Here's one for you. A man wanting to rob a downtown Bank of America well, bank went into the branch and wrote this note and handed it to the teller. The note read, put all your money, M-U-N-Y, in this bag. While standing in line waiting to give his note to the teller, he began to worry that someone had seen him write the note and might call the police before he reached the teller's window. So he left the Bank of America uh, branch, walked across the street to the Wells Fargo Bank. After waiting a few minutes in line, he handed his note to the Wells Fargo teller. She read it and, surmising from his spelling errors that he wasn't the brightest light in the harbor, told him that she could not accept his stick-up note because it was written on the Bank of America deposit slip and that he would have to either fill out a Wells Fargo deposit slip or go back to Bank of America. Looking somewhat defeated, the man said, okay, he left. He was arrested a few minutes later as he was waiting back in line at the Bank of America when the police found him. Here's one for you. A motorist was unknowingly caught in an automated speed trap that measured his speed using radar and photographed his car. He later received in the mail a ticket for $140 and a photo of his car. Instead of pay sending back a payment, he thought he'd be cute, he sent back to the police department a photograph of a $140 check. Several days later, he received a letter from the police that contained another picture, this time handcuffs. <laughs> he immediately mailed his $140 to the, to the police department. We're talking about people who do foolish things. Back in 1 Kings 18, if you weren't with us this morning, if you were in the ministry across the way, we start, we're talking about what happens as Ahab and Jezebel have foolishly led the nation of Israel into Baal worship, and now Elijah, after three and a half years, he's confronting them in front of everybody and they have the contest between uh, the prophets of Baal and between the, uh, the man Elijah in front of all the nation has gathered there and there's 450 prophets of Baal plus the 400 prophets of Ashtaroth against Elijah and the contest basically was let's build an altar. Let's, let's read it. It'll be easier if I just read it and we can catch up and keep on going in the story. It says in verse 25, Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first for you are many and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire underneath. They took the bull, which they had, which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. They leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry louder. He is a god. Either he is talking, or is he pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleeps and must be awakened. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. 
And all the people there at the top of that mountain area came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And he took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be my name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he built, made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. He put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid the bull on top of the wood, and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have, and that you have turned their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get up. Eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, cast himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. He went up and looked and said, There's nothing. Go again seven times, he told the servant. And it came to pass at the seventh time that the servant said, Behold, there arises a little cloud out of excuse me, my pages stick together, out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, go up, say unto Ahab, prepare your chariot, get thee down, that the rain stop you not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven became black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Does that sound like the last few weeks here? Okay. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The story is amazing. It's fabulous. I, I just try to picture what it must have been like. It was just phenomenal. Now, we said in conclusion, we said there are several clear truths in the text about the Lord. We can draw some clear truths about people, but if we're going to be theocentric, God-centered in our Bible study, let's think about what this teaches us about God. What was the lesson that was being conveyed to all the people watching that they sat, the contest taking place? What was God trying to get across? We said there were several things that God wanted to get across to them and also to us, that He's real. He's alive. He's well. He is powerful. That He is, he is not a figment or a, or a legendary character or a mythological. He is the real God and He is the one to be worshipped. If He is real, let God be your God. And if Baal were real, let Baal be your, your God. And so He made it very clear, I am real. Therefore, the deal was, whoever wins this contest, whatever deity, He is going to be your God. God is real, so then the people have to recommit to Him. God is powerful. We made this observation this morning that he is able to put aside all the natural laws. He's able to bring fire out of heaven, soak up something that, or burn up something that is absolutely soaked, make it light up without all kinds of petrol or, or lighter fluid or things like that. It just went up in flames. Even the rocks burned up. Even the water that was there. It's the power of God. Just a thrilling observation that those people had in a situation. We said that God has our back without trying to be irreverent, but being just pointed in words that we can understand. God has our back when we do what he commands. 
commands. He had the prophet Elijah did everything according to the words of the Lord, we pointed out. That at the end of his prayer, he makes it very clear. God had told him about this contest. God had told him to saturate it. And he did everything that God had said, and God now has his back, that God comes through and doesn't let him stand there holding the bag, looking foolish, just as God had promised. God shows his power to the people. Let's make another observation. Okay, that though patient, God will destroy those who reject him. And we made that point with this idea, God has been very patient with the Jewish people up to this point. They have been following Baal, they've been worshiping him, there's been three and a half years of punishment and drought, and yet he's giving them opportunity to repent and giving them an object lesson of why they should repent. And part of that object lesson is the 12 stones representing them are lapped up as well. God could destroy the Jewish people in a moment if he wanted to, just like he destroyed those stones. He's being very patient. He's powerful. But they need to respond to him. Let's make another observation or two this evening. God wants his people to choose to follow him. God wants his people to choose to follow him. God, who is the sovereign God, gives you free will. And he's saying to the nation of Israel, you've got to choose. Why do you halt? Remember we point out this morning, the word is, why do you limp between these two opinions, literally, these two choices? Make up your mind, who are you going to serve? And God made it very clear, I want you to choose. Now Jesus Christ has laid that out for his disciples at times, that they have to choose as well. He preached that same message, that you have to choose you and choose this day like Joshua had said, choose you just this day whom you will serve. And Joshua's conclusion, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, and so that same thing comes up. Paul in his writings writes the believers and he talks to them about having to choose. Let not sin therefore reign in your body, but let righteousness rule. Romans 6 where he gets to finally Romans 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body a what? living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto the Lord. And uh, goes on, says, this is your reasonable service. We read about that all the way when he's writing to the churches in the book of, uh, book of Revelation. He talks to the church of uh, Thyatira, is it, or Laodicea, that he says, I, Laodicea, I would that you were neither hot nor cold, but that you would be serving the Lord. And that whole idea that we need to choose choose this day. And so he gave that choice to them, which by the way, it's almost for, I don't know if you look at it this way, I almost look at it like it's weekly. That we get together, we gather, we study the Word of God, and we are to redetermine, refresh our minds, re-energize ourselves to say, I want to serve the Lord. Feed me some more. And this week, I'm going to determine to serve the Lord. And so that first day of the week is set aside for us to just get charged up as well as to make those commitments. Let's make another observation and focus on this one for the most part, or the next one, the next two. God will use normal people in unusual ways if they choose to follow Him. That is the story of Elijah. Elijah is used as a mouthpiece. God is the one doing the miracles. Elijah is a tool in his hand, and God used Elijah in a wonderful way. To bring about revival, he's the last of the prophets that's not in hiding. He is against all of them, and it comes to a point that God uses him, and the people are saying, what are we supposed to do? And he directs the people. He tells the people, get rid of the prophets, and they clean house, and they destroy those 850 prophets, and so God is just using Elijah in a marvelous way, just a wonderful way. And part of that goes to this next thought, okay? That's very important. God hears the prayers of the righteous when they pray right. In this story, here's the human factor. God hears the prayer of the righteous when they pray right. 
Okay, the reason I'm using these terms are because they're biblical terms. In the sense in 1 Kings, when we read the story about Ahab, when we read actually chapter 17 and 18, to this point, we are running a lot of the story of the man Elijah. And let's, let's make clear, I believe, and I think it, you'll, you'll see the same thing, we would say that Elijah was a righteous man. And we're not making this up. Do you remember back in James chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, where it says, the prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? And then what illustration does James use? What person does he use as his illustration? He uses Elijah. And he talks about how Elijah prayed that it might not rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain, and then he prayed for rain, and it rained. The example that James uses, and I find it very ironic that James, in writing James chapter 5, where he says that Elijah, a man subject unto like passions as we are, okay, he prayed and God used his prayer life. It's interesting that he uses Elijah as his example for prayer. Anybody remember James's nickname? He was called Camel Knees, the one who writes the book of James. Do you remember why? Because he prayed so much, he was known that he was, his knees were calloused because he was on his knees so much. He was a real prayer warrior. And his hero, his earthly hero that he looks to is Elijah as his example for a prayer warrior. And so when he's talking about Elijah and makes that statement, the illustration that he uses is a man that he considers to be a righteous man. That Elijah, subject to like passions, prayed. And, and that's, this story is the very story that James points to, that prayer is really really, really a tool in the hands of the believers. And his two-point argument there that James gives is prayer is powerful, that it is an absolutely amazing thing, and it's profitable. It works. It can do amazing things. That's what James is getting at when he's writing to his readers, encouraging them to prayer. And so his example of that, we said, is Elijah. And his example is a righteous man who prayed right, that God will answer his prayers and work in an unusual way. So we have to look back and say, okay, let's, let's go back to the story that James refers to by Scripture that God uses under inspiration and say that Elijah is a righteous man and what made him righteous and what was right about his prayer? Those are the two questions we have to answer for the next few minutes. What made him a righteous man? And what was right about his prayer? Because he's the example of God hearing prayers of a righteous person when it's done right. Let's talk about his righteousness, okay? Why was it, he, why is he referred to by James under the Spirit of God as a righteous individual? There's a lot of things we could put down here. But let's start with his faith his faith in God Almighty. And I'm going to walk through a whole bunch of what we've studied so far, not just this one account. We'll, we'll focus in on this account when we talk more about right praying. But let's just talk about his in general. Do you remember in chapter 17 when we began this series just a few weeks ago, he comes before Elijah and he says, you know, before the Lord God of Israel, before whom I'm standing. He's the God of Israel. He's, he's got faith in the Lord. He believes, even though everybody else around him believes in Baal, he is very clearly saying it's God who is our God. And when he prays at Mount Carmel, he prays that this is the God of our ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Be it known that you are the God. He believes in God being God of his life, being Lord, being master, being ruler. He has put his faith in him. He is relying upon God for what you and I would say, being born again, being saved. And so he has faith in the Lord Jehovah when nobody else 
in that capital city, nobody else except for Obadiah, and he's a secret closet Christian, the rest of them, they don't have faith in Jehovah. He doesn't care what the crowd is doing. He has faith in Jehovah. Let's make another observation. He's obedient to Jehovah. This is righteousness. One is faith, then there's obedience. How is it that he's obedient? Well, every time the word of the Lord came unto him and said, go to Kareth, he went to Kareth. The word of the Lord said, arise from Kareth and go to Zarephath. He got up and he went to Zarephath. We've talked about those things already. The word of the Lord came to him in chapter 18, verse 1, and says, leave Zarephath and go and find and bring yourself before Ahab. He did that. In this passage, he makes it clear that in verse 36, as we pointed out this morning, that this was all God's idea. He did this entire concept contest as dangerous as it was and as unreasonable as it was by human standards. He did everything according to the word of the Lord. This man, if you're going to put something over his, over his life, you'd say obedient. His epitaph, he's obedient. He does what God says he's supposed to do. And that happens time and time and time again. Going even to a widow to take care of him. It was because God had told him. Do you remember when he goes to the widow? He says the Lord he says that he's going to take care of your needs. So he had done that, gone to Zarephath, gone to that widow, all because God told him. Goes to dangerous spots. Stays there in the wilderness when the water is running out because God had said so. Has the contest because God said so. Doing everything that God said. He's obedient. Something else that makes him righteous, his fellowship with Jehovah. He spends time with Jehovah. That is, he's, you and I would say he has devotions. He has a, a regular period of time. How do we know that? Okay, that period of time, maybe a year that he was at, at Kareth, but there's also indication he had multiple conversations, ongoing conversations with the Lord. And I've alluded to a couple of them. When he goes to see the widow in chapter 17, which we looked at, he comes to her and says, thus saith the Lord. So he had had conversation with God about Zarephath. When, he's, when he does this <clears throat> contest, he says, I've done according to thy word. He and God have had conversation. When, um, when he, and he is saying to Ahab, okay, you need to get moving. Ahab, go eat. Everybody's been here for the long day. You better order out, do something, get some food. Instead of him going and eating with the rest of the crowd after they got rid of the prophets and spent a long day at Mount Carmel, he goes and spends time in prayer. This fellow has this idea of fellowship with the Lord is so important that sometimes I may even have to give up a meal. Sometimes I have to give up some of the activities that others are doing because I want to be focusing on prayer. He is a real prayer warrior. Fellowship with the Lord Jehovah. That makes him righteous. There's something else. His commitment to the Lord. And it's as similar to what we've said. But I want you to catch this in chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. His prayer is not about make, make everybody to understand that I have been preaching right. Make, make, make sure that I'm justified. He doesn't even bring himself up. He says his prayer focus when praying for that contest and God to send fire is let, you, let everybody know you are God. Let your glory be revealed. It's not about him. It's about the Lord Jehovah. He's very committed to the Lord, which brings us to his humility. His humility is seen in that this is all about God. This isn't about Elijah being justified or being popular. He keeps calling himself repeatedly. He had said, before whom I stand, in chapter 17, verse 1, when he talks about <clears throat> to Obadiah, you know, that before the Lord whom I serve or I stand, I promise you we're not going to leave. He uses this idea that I'm a servant or I am standing. The idea is I am worshiping, I am surrendered to him. Very, very clear he is a dedicated servant of the Lord that that's his title of choice. He doesn't say, I'm a prophet, listen to me. Look at my office, look at my position. I'm a servant. 
I'm a servant. I'm a servant. <clears throat> and so he's, when this contest takes place, it's not about what people think about me. It's God. When he is done with that contest, he cast himself. It says, as we've quoted the verse here, and we already read it, he cast himself upon the earth and put his face to the ground. He assumes the posture of the ancient Near East, idea of real humility before his deity. And so he's got humility, he's got faith, he's got commitment. All those things put together bring us to the conclusion, Elijah's a righteous man. Okay, hang on to that. Okay, because if by making comparison, you have to ask yourself, am I righteous? Am I righteous? Because God hears the prayer of the righteous believer who prays right. So we have to ask ourselves the question, am I righteous? Yes, you're a believer. You put faith in Jesus Christ. What about your communion? What about your commitment? What about your humility? What about your obedience? All those things play into here of maintaining that close, obedient walk with the Lord so that he can bless your life and he can answer your prayers. What about praying right? Elijah prays right. Now, what's interesting, Elijah doesn't always pray long, but he prays right. Sometimes it seems like he's praying longer but he's praying right. And so it's not necessarily his posture, it's not the period of time that he prays, it's not the exact words, but it's his attitude. What makes his prayer right? If God hears the prayer of his righteous children when they pray right, what was it about this righteous man that was right in his prayers that you and I can use that as an example? Well, let's look at several things. One, he prayed with regularity. Again, looking at all these stories, he prays on a regular basis. Now James uses him as a, an example when he says, he prayed not that it rained not upon the earth for the space of three months. Remember a few weeks back when we pointed out the word here in the original is that he prayed earnestly is the idea he prayed over and over and over and over and over again. That he was regularly praying. Something else with that, when he prayed, he also prays when there's a crisis. The widow's son that he's staying with, and we looked at the story already, he gets sick and the boy dies. Elijah's response, even when the woman accuses him of being the one who brought death to her son, that you have called my sins into remembrance, are you here to slay me? His response is to go to prayer when he's attacked. He's praying with regularity. Something else, at the contest when he's in the middle of a major ministry, a major decision, a major challenge before the uh, corporate Israel, he goes to prayer. Prayer is made in his life at some of the most inconvenient moments and some of the most convenient moments to pray. But he is praying with regularity. Then after the contest is over, he doesn't just bask in the glory, he goes right to prayer again. Prayer seems to be his motive of, uh, modus of operandi at all times, in all cases, that he says, I can pray and I pray. And he does. He doesn't just talk about it. He actually does pray with regularity. Even in the private situations, public situations. Even for long times or short times, the reality is he prayed frequently. There was that aspect of his life that prayer was a regular response that he had to situations in life. Let's look at something else about his prayer life. Okay, that's important. He prayed with reverence. He prayed with reverence. It says in, in chapter 17 where he is talking before the Lord, he says, I'm your servant. He says that same thing, or that same idea, I'm sorry, it should be chapter 18, verse 36, 18, verse 42, mistakes here, that he's calling himself a servant, and he's praying with reverence as he casts himself upon the earth. 
that he is saying, okay, Lord, you are God. I am just your servant. And he humbles himself. He assumes that position, that posture of real humility. And that's interesting considering this is his big day. This is his graduation day. This is his inauguration day. This is his day where his ministry of, of that it's been planned for three and a half years, this is it. This is the big day and he still is saying, I'm a servant. He is still saying, you are more important than me. And it's his time. Now let me remind you that at this moment, he's leading the entire nation in revival. He's their leader. He has become the spiritual leader. They are not asking King Ahab what to do. They're looking to Elijah and saying, what do we do? Do you, do you remember in the text? Where the people say, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. And in verse 40, Elijah says to them, take the prophets of Baal and not let one of them escape. And they did exactly what he says. They take the prophets of Baal and they kill them. Do you remember how he said that probably one of the reasons that when he said, why do you halt between two opinions or and earlier in the chapter, and the people stood in silence. And we made the observation, the reason that they are saying, okay, should we do Jehovah, should we do Baal? But they wouldn't come out and say one or the other was probably fear of Jezebel that she had already done the persecution, killed many of the prophets. And now there is no hesitation on the people's part. They wipe out all of her prophets. Remember it's described that some of those prophets, 400 of them, ate at her table. So this is a real slap in her face, but the people don't stop. They are listening to Elijah. Elijah's in charge. Elijah is on a roll. He is talking about what to do and they're doing it. In fact, he tells the king what to do. The next few verses it says, he tells the king, he says, uh, get you up, eat and drink for there's a sound of abundance of rain. Then he tells the servant, oh by the way, tell Ahab you better get back to the palace. And uh, he's advising the king. He's in a very powerful position at this moment. And yet at this powerful position he is still a servant of the Lord. Servant of the Lord. You're more important. This is about you. It's not about me. And he's very, very humble at this moment. That much kneeling keeps us in good standing with God. One of those quotes that people write in the front leaf of their Bible. That's an important idea. You know, we've just seen it, <clears throat> we've just seen it recently, that water, it pools at the lowest spots. You see it on the roads, you see it in the creeks, you see it in your basements with all the water. The blessings of God, they go where there's the low spots, where the believer has fallen before the Lord spiritually, given themselves as a servant to the Lord. You and I need to remember, right praying involves reverence. Not help me to be exalted, but let thy name be glorified. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom whose will be done here in heaven as it is on earth. Lord, it's all about you and it's all not about me. There's the reverence. Let's go a little bit further. Praying right, pray with specifics. Pray with specifics. Now, in his specifics, he prayed that it might not rain, okay, very clear. He's got a specific prayer that James talks about. He prays for the boy's life to be restored. Very specific that he prays for that boy after he has fallen dead. Praying that the rain would return after a major drought. Okay, that's what's happening in chapter 18, starting in verse 42 and following. Now what's interesting about this is back in chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass that after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, Go show yourself unto Ahab, I will send rain upon the earth. He went to show himself unto Ahab, there was a sore famine. And then we have the whole story. Now in verse 42, it says, He went up, Elijah went up onto top of Mount Carmel, cast himself down, put his face between the knees, and it doesn't quote his prayer, 
but it reveals to us that he is praying in that sense that he's telling the servant, go up. And when the servant comes back, he tells him seven times, go up. And he's still there on his knees before the Lord. And he's talking about and praying for the clouds to come, the rain to come. And as soon as it comes, then he gets up and he's moving. He's praying for rain. Why is he praying for rain when God has already said, I'm sending rain? Why do we pray for things that God has already promised us? It's a question we should answer. Maybe another time? Okay. Maybe we'll do it in a minute. Let me finish this one out, okay? He prayed with persistence. He stretched himself on the lad several times, sends his servant up to the hilltop seven times. So here he does is he's praying per the will of God. Praying per the will of God. Remember Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, okay, the idea is according to my will. How, that's what Elijah prays. Elijah prays for his will, God's will, according to his will. He prays no rain. Well, that's according to the will of God, Deuteronomy 11. We've shown you this verse several times. It's the curse that God said, if you don't worship me and go after other gods, I'll hold back the rain. So when he prays that it doesn't rain, he's not praying for something unusual. He's praying for something that's according to the word of God, according to the will of God, in the name of God, what God would have. In 1 Kings 18, God says it's going to rain. And then we have in verse 42 and following, he prays for rain, which brings us to that question, why bother praying after God said he'd do something? Which, you know, we don't want to ask because it may sound irreverent, but at the same time, it's a worthy question to ask. You know, in other words, why do we pray for the needs to be provided when God has already promised, I will supply all your needs? Why do we bother praying about it? Um, why do we pray for God to work in the hearts of people when we give out the word of God, when he said that wherever I am lifted up, I will draw men to myself? Okay, why do we pray then? When we give out the tracts, why do we pray to follow up those tracts when God promised that his word would not return void? Why do we pray for our marriages, for our kids? Well, maybe our kids, that's a real obvious one. But why do we pray for our marriages when God said that he will build our homes, that he was already going to work and bless if we are doing what's right? Why do we pray when God has already promised well, there's several reasons. You can, you can get into all kinds of conversations about it, but the ones that seem most obvious to me are these reasons, okay? Why do we do that when I know God said he's going to provide? So, you know, God's, God tells me I'm supposed to declare the word of God, teach you the word of God, so why do I pray that the word of God has effect in your hearts when he's already said, if I declare the word of God, it's going to have effect in your hearts? <coughs> Well, part of the reason that we're supposed to pray, and for me I have to pray is so that I would say it in a clear way, that I present it clearly. We understand that we have to pray about the mechanics. But let's keep this in mind. God's promises are not an excuse for us not to pray. They don't get us off the hook. Okay? In, in fact, God commands us to pray. That should settle the issue at all. We don't even have to go any further. God has told us we should pray. He commands us to pray. So even if he has promised whatever to meet my needs, but he says, I want you to pray about them, that's enough. That settles it. God has commanded us. But there's other reasons that can go right along with this. Okay? We're, by praying, this is a demonstration to God that we still believe in him. We do believe his promises, and we are wanting to enjoy his promises and wanting him to fulfill it. So our prayer is a statement of faith and dependence and desire for him, which leads us to, I think, a real strong indication is by my praying, I am revealing, showing to God in a very outward way and an outward expression that I really want him to bless me, that at times I want his blessings more than I want my food, that his, his, his promises are more of a craving in my heart 
than pizza is a craving in my belly. And so that's, there's a display here. It's, a, it's an expression to the Lord that I believe you, I'm obedient to you, that I want what you have promised, that they're important to me. So our praying shows him, demonstrates to him, and it's a demonstration that I'm dependent upon you, that God, I am depending upon you to fulfill your promises, that I can't bring it about by myself. I will do my part, but I really need you. I'm dependent upon you, and my prayer is an expression of that. that as well, that prayer helps to remind me that I need to be dependent upon Him, that I need to be humble before Him, that you and I, it's not us, it's Him. And so prayer has a practical benefit for us as we pray, not only as a demonstration to God, but it keeps us in the right frame of mind, the right attitude, the right dependence upon the Lord, and as a result, some phenomenal things can happen when we pray. And so that prayer aspect is really, really important. Now, we need to pray not only in the will of God, but also with confidence that what we're praying about, that God can do, God will do, God, please send rain. God said that he was going to, and he says to the king, there is a sound of abundance of rain. Real faith, real belief. It's there. There's no cloud in the sky at that moment. You put, put the story together. When he says to the servant, or he says to Ahab, you know, there's sound of abundance of rain, and then he hasn't even seen a cloud until the next few verses go by. He's one of those individuals that he's praying for rain and shows up at the prayer meeting with an umbrella, even though there's still the sky is clear. He believes in prayer. He believes that God is going to keep his word. He sent his servant. He says, go up, look, look, look. There's going to be something. And then go tell Ahab, you better get moving. There's going to be a huge amount of rain. So he has total confidence that God is going to provide for him. So when we pray, we need to pray with faith, with confidence that God is going to answer. So what do I learn? What do I learn from this story? What do we bring together about this aspect of prayer? A simple aspect of prayer that you already know about, that you already could write these notes better than I could. What do we learn from it? Just a couple lessons, okay? Prayer is a powerful tool. God hears the prayer of his righteous children when they pray right. Prayer is a powerful, powerful, powerful tool in the hands of God's people. Something else, powerful praying is possible for normal people. Do not diminish the fact that you're only a teenager. That, that, that's, don't say it that way. You are a child of God who happens to be in your teens. God will hear you when you pray. Well, I'm just whatever. No, don't, don't do the just, you know, I'm just, you know, not Bible knowledgeable. I'm just, you know, this, I'm not skilled in these areas. I'm not an athlete. I'm not a musician. I'm, I'm not, you know, this, that, or the other thing. It, God hears you. God says that you as normal individuals, God will answer your prayers in a powerful, powerful fashion. That's what he promises if you and I are righteous and pray right. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. It's all because Jesus Christ, which we're going to celebrate in the next few moments and think about this when we do communion tonight. The reason we can pray is because of this, what Christ is representing, what he has done. He removed our sin, so we have no barrier between us and God. What a wonderful concept that he is the mediator. He has provided a way of talking to the Lord. Let's go to that passage that Cindy read a little bit earlier, but let's go there and close out with this text in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4 is that text that's talking about that idea of what Christ has done, the door that he has opened, and specifically the prayer, the prayer avenue in Hebrews chapter 4. It talks very clearly as he's, he's talking and saying, seeing then that we have a great high priest 
that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was on all points, what? Tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, because of what Christ has done, let us do what? Come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we can pray. And he has made it possible for every one of us, for all of us, that we can go to him in prayer. This prayer takes a lot of personal effort. Sometimes though, Sometimes we're kind of like I was reading about a guy, a true story of a guy that went on a cruise, saved up his money. This uh, preacher was telling about it in Chicago. Somebody in his church had, had been not a real, real big paying job, but he all his life wanted to go on a cruise. And so he saved up his money, got his ticket, got on the cruise, but he thought to himself, the cruise has cost me so much money, I better take some bag lunches with me. You know, better because I want to I be able to eat, but I won't be able to afford any of the food. They talk about all these big buffets on these cruises. I won't be able to pay for that, but I still want to go on the cruise. So it's like the third day of the cruise that finally he asked somebody, how much did that platter cost him? And what did he hear at that moment? Nothing. It was part of the paying price. Here he was. He was entitled to it, to be able to go to that, you know, shady maple on, on uh, water. He was able to do that, but he wasn't taking full advantage. You know what the bottom line is? Some of us have been that way this week. There's been a smorgasbord of fellowship with God, and we haven't taken advantage of it. It takes effort on our part, but the effort is doing it right. The opportunity is already provided. We can go before him. We can talk to him because of what Christ has done. I remember years ago when I was pastored elsewhere for those couple of years that there was a couple in the church that came in. They were remodeling their house. And they came in. They were, they were remodeling. And I know it never happens to any of you. But this couple had spent all their waking hours at home remodeling the house for the several weeks to the point that they were physically exhausted. And when they got exhausted physically, they got exhausted with each other. Okay, because the remodeling took its toll on their patience with each other. So they came in and they were just wore out and they looked and they said, it's just, it, it's, there is so much to do. We, and we're not, you know, we're just sick and tired of the remodeling and we're sick and tired of each other. Do you have any wise counsel to give us? I don't have any wise counsel. Okay, that's the bottom line. But, um, but I remember what I said to them and I think it was the right thing and it was, it sounds terrible to say, but it was right. I looked at him and said, you just have to do it. They said, what? I said, you just have to do it. I said, what do you mean? You have to get it done. You just have to plow through, get it done, and when it's done, things will turn out a whole lot better once you get through it. But you have to do it. If you sit here now in the middle of your kitchen, totally dismantled, and leave it, the tension's not going away. Right? Ladies, right? Okay. It's got to get done. It's got to get done. So you just have to you know, pull up your big boy pants and get it done. Sometimes prayer is like that. Sometimes prayer is, boy, this is tough. You just have to learn, do it. Do it. It's like riding a bike. How do I get it down pat? Read a book. I know how you do it. You really figure out how to ride a bike by watching YouTube videos. That'll help you to ride the bike. No, what do you have to do, parents, when you're teaching them? They have to ride it. Just do it. You and I need to get into prayer and work through that prayer and learn to do it. Just pray. 
Pray right, but just do it. Work at it. Work at it. Here's my lessons that I come walking away with. All those other things, but this one, God hears the prayers of the righteous when they pray right. Question comes down to this. Does God hear you? Now, the reason I'm asking is twofold. Does God hear you, according to our statement here, because you are a righteous person? Does God hear you because you have faith, because you are obedient to him, that you are having fellowship with him, that you are one that he would say you're a righteous person, I'm hearkening to your prayers? Maybe I should ask the second part. Does God hear you because you even bother praying? Is there anything coming out of your lips towards God? Or is it just the thought, yeah, I should pray about it, but it never happens? You and I are going to be celebrating communion in the next few minutes. This has not only been the promise of eternal life, but of blessings in our life right now because Jesus has opened up that opportunity to pray. So this evening, take advantage of reminding yourselves that prayer comes by the work of Jesus Christ, and we need to just do it.